Well done. Let's pray for our kids as they head out to Treasure Seekers uh, and uh, as we come to the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just, again, it is so good to, to give thanks to you, for you are a good. Lord, as we come to your Word this morning, as our children head out to Treasure Seekers, Lord, we... That that's, that's what we're, we're, our desire is this morning, to seek your treasure, to seek your kingdom. So lead us in your ways. Amen. Thanks, kids. You can head on, head on out, out the back there. <clears throat> so this morning, we're, we're taking a bit of a sidetrack from our Ezra-Nehemiah series. Last week, we came to the end of the book of Ezra and we saw that the people who had returned from exile were confronted by their own fresh rebellion against God. They had compromised their relationship with God in a way that meant that they had rejected God to pursue their own desires and their own priorities. We also saw that the way in which they dealt that, and so, so what that practically was, if you missed it, was that they married women from the, the Canaanite people, from the, the, the people that the Assyrians had placed there and, and people from Egypt of whom God had said, don't. And, and he didn't simply say don't because they're not Israelites. He said, don't marry them because they will never follow me. Don't marry them because they will always lead you astray. And so the response that they had when they, they dealt with this issue was, as Ezra had recorded it, they put away their wives and their children. In other words, they divorced them. As I mentioned last week, this doesn't create for us today a biblical principle of divorce. But it does raise the question, are there any times when divorce is okay? We're going to try and answer that question today. There are many reasons that people get divorced these days. People even get divorced for no reason. They just feel like it. That, that, that the relationship has lost its love. They fell out of love with one another. They've had enough of their marriage and they, they just don't want to keep going. They want out. They want to try something a bit different or new or maybe someone different. The grass looks a lot greener with a relationship with someone else. Often when we're unhappy in a situation, we look for a reason, an excuse to get out. And when it comes to marriages and divorce, when we're looking for a reason to get out, I think we've lost sight of what marriage is and what God created it to be and what he intended it to be. There are three important principles that I want us to be aware of as we get into this, this message this morning. The first is that whenever we depart from God's good design, we end up with brokenness. Whenever sin has crept into any aspect of our relationship or lives, there's brokenness. Wherever there is sin, there can be forgiveness and healing. Only by grace and with repentance can we find healing and wholeness in Jesus. His grace is perfect and freely available. His grace is sufficient and covers all our sin. Because we have forgiveness in Jesus does not mean that we should continue to seek to live in sin. And thirdly, when we focus on what is permissible, what we can and can't do, it becomes easy for us to lose sight 
of what God has created us and desires for us. When we start asking, when can I get divorced, we lose sight of what God has intended for us in marriage. When we ask, why can't I have sex with whomever I want, we lose sight of what God has designed the sexual relationship for. We lose sight of the fact that God desires something better for us, something that we might not fully understand now, but we need to trust him. Let me say this right from the outset this, this morning. When I'm talking about marriage, I'm not talking about a legal definition. I'm talking about a relationship defined and created by God. Marriage is not a social convention. It's not something created by society for whatever purposes fit the emotions or demands of society in that particular day. Marriage is a creation of God for the lifelong union between a man and a woman, which is consummated in a sexual relationship. So what did God intend marriage to be? Firstly, uh, it's a partnership. We read in, in Genesis, uh, then God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God's design for marriage was always partnership. Not of two individuals not of one greater and one lesser, but of two equal parts, different and distinct in themselves, yet together able to care for each other, love each other, support, equip and empower each other to help each other in caring for God's creation and relating to God. I should say here also, the word used of helper to describe woman, to describe Eve, is not assistant. The word is the same word that God uses of himself. So, so do not think that this is a diminutive kind of responsibility or place that God has created from the outset that, that woman is less than man. That is, that is not the case. What is the case is that, that God looked upon man and he said, this is not going to work. <laughs> men, this is not going to work. You need someone who is going to be strong when you're weak. You need someone who is going to be able to encourage you and, and challenge you and, and, and empower you. And so he created Eve. Not another exactly the same as Adam. He didn't just double up Adam because there are, there are all sorts of other nuances that, that as a wife, Eve needed from Adam. 
And that is the beauty of this union and this partnership. That's what God meant when he created man and woman to be together in marriage. Yet through broken, sinful examples, we've seen and experienced our definition of marriage becomes blurred and out of focus. We've seen generations of men lord themselves over their wives. Generations of men who seek to control their wives, limit and box them in. Generations of men who belittle their wives, telling them their womanly instincts, their motherly attributes and their gentle love is less than what a man can provide. If you have ever heard that, and you're a woman, a mother here today, maybe you're not even old enough for that yet. I want you to know that that is a lie. Being just a mum, there is no just thing. It is, it is something that God has created you for. Something that you're able to nurture and grow in children that, that we as, as men cannot do. The lies that our world has said is to build up this, this uh, to cover over an insecurity that men have had and harbored for generations and generations and generations. And, and the lie that they have said is that women only matter because men matter. And that is not the case. That is not the case at all. Everything that a woman uniquely brings to a relationship is essential. It's important and it's something that a man cannot be. Women think differently to men. They see things differently and that is a good thing. That is a God thing. In more recent generations, we've also seen that the response to men devaluing women and, and the tragedy is that instead of recognizing our uniqueness in relationship, we've ended up with a competition between the genders. We have women who've been told that in order for you to have any kind of value, you need to do what men do. We, we, we approach God's creation with a worldly perspective and that is gonna be problematic. For Adam and Eve, God did not create competition but partnership. He did not establish sameness but distinction, this complementary partnership. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife as they become one flesh. There are two important aspects to this design of God's marriage. The first is the union of two into one. This reflects back the, the partnership idea. There is no longer two individuals but one couple. So a husband or as a husband or, or as a wife, I'm no longer concerned about my own personal interest, but the interests of my pastor and my, my, my partner and my spouse. Don't mind if you're concerned about the interests of your pastor. <laughs> but I meant, what I meant to say was your partner, your spouse, because I am hers and she is me. We are are together united in life, bound together in covenant. Marriage, especially in our Western context, is the most complete demonstration of the idea of covenant that there is. A covenant that is un an unbreakable commitment. It's not simply a, a contract with clauses for dissolution. 
The second aspect of marriage as a union is, is the design for, of sexual relationships. It's here at the beginning of Genesis that we're introduced to the design and purpose of a sexual relationship. That is to consummate the covenant of marriage. It creates a physical and emotional bond. We take that relationship outside of marriage, outside of a marriage covenant, we are bonding ourselves to multiple people and breaking that covenant over and over again. Ultimately, it causes us damage and brokenness because that is not how God designed a sexual relationship to be. And if you've ever experienced that kind of separation from someone that you've been bound to so closely, uh, a great illustration, um, maybe this afternoon, go home, find two different colored pieces of paper and glue them together. When the glue's dried, I want you to pull those pieces of paper apart. What you're gonna see, let's take the example of a pink piece and a blue piece. You'll see bits of blue on the pink piece and bits of pink on the blue piece. And so it's a great way to, to visualize what happens when we tear apart a bond that, it, that God has created and designed to be the most intimate bond. It's going to tear parts of us away. And it's going to leave parts of our partner with us. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read of the expression of God's love. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself as its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to, to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present to the church the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. In verse 22 here, this, this, this passage gets so emotionally charged, doesn't it? Because we bring worldly definitions and worldly expectations into God's design. And that's where it doesn't work. Submit does not mean to be uh, demonstrably less than. Submit means trust, empower, release, this is not a statement that says women can't. It's a statement that, that God is saying, there's, there's a responsibility that I have woven into the fiber of men. And they need to, it's not an authority. There's a, there's a slight distinction there. There's a responsibility to love, to lead, and to sacrifice. And the submit that Paul is talking about here to wives is allow your husband to lead. Call your husband to lead. Expect your husband to lead in a godly way. Because he then goes on and expands on, on what that leadership should look like. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If a husband is leading the family and leading the wife in the, in the proper way, it's sacrificial. It's beneficial to the wife and to the children. It means that they are placed first because he is seeking to feed them and encourage them and help them grow in their faith and their walk with God. He's seeking to empower them and to cherish them and to nurture them. That's what, what leading and being the head of the house means. It doesn't mean standing over your family. It doesn't mean dictating what is right and wrong and what people should wear and do. And that is coercive abuse. That is coercive abuse. And if you're sitting here and you've seen that, if you've experienced that, I want you to know that that is not what God says a marriage should be. That is not what a marriage should be. That is not how a husband is called to live. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 8, we read, If I speak in the tongues of men, again, this is Paul speaking, and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Marriage, as God has designed and created it, is meant to be for the embodiment of God's love. It is meant to be countercultural. Christian marriage is something that should be light to the world, shining God's love and commitment. It demonstrate that, demonstrates a love that never quits, a love that never gives up, a love that forgives, a love that is patient and gracious and merciful, a love that sacrifices all. Divorce then cannot be seen as something that is morally neutral. It can't be seen as a choice or a decision that is based on God's love or righteousness or his very design for marriage. Divorce in its very essence is the evidence of the pervasiveness of sin within a marriage relationship. Let me say that again. Divorce in its very essence is the evidence of a pervasive, the pervasiveness of sin within a marriage relationship. In, in other words, when, when families, when individuals get to the point of divorce, there is an acknowledgement there, whether it be um, conscious or not. We've not lived your way, God. That's what divorce says. We have not done this your way. In Mark chapter 10, and he left there and went to the region of Judea, but beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house of the, of his, of the disciples asked, again, uh, asked him again this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The basis of this passage is that under the law of Moses, divorce was something that was permitted. The Pharisees had interpreted this allowance as permission, as though it was completely okay and perfectly reasonable. However, they missed the point that it is never what God had intended for his people or his creation. It's never what God had desired for us. Jesus points out that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of their heart. It was a measure to protect the integrity of the marriage covenants so that it wouldn't become a complete sham and lose all sense of value and meaning. But it was also to protect the women involved as well, to stop them being sent away shamefully this would make it look like they had been unfaithful and that they had disgraced their husband. Instead, the husbands were required to issue them with a letter of divorce. Jesus again reiterates that divorce is never desirable, that it's counterintuitive to what God desires for us to have in this special union. Jesus finishes by talking with his disciples and explaining that divorce does not dissolve the marriage bond. It only separates a couple from their civil responsibilities. They're still bound together. They are still one flesh. And to remarry after divorce amounts to adultery. Divorce always, always leaves us with brokenness. It will never leave us without pain or hurt. Even though there are times when the relationships are difficult and rocky and painful, God desire, God's desire for us is to experience and give grace in those times, to seek restoration and justice. Not one party getting their just desserts, but the relationship being restored and made whole again. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the believing wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul makes a, a couple of key points here. Firstly, and this applies to a Christian couple who are married, even separation is not desirable. 
But if it is necessary, then the right thing to do is to remain unmarried and preferably to seek reconciliation. Either way, in the circumstance of separation, divorce is not considered an option. Secondly, in the event that the marriage uh, is of one person a Christian and the other not, this is not ideal because it brings into tensions around priorities and values when it comes to the place of, of God and faith in the family. In these circumstances, Paul encourages for the believer to remain with their spouse because if for no other reason, their life and their example may be the witness that they need to lead them to Jesus. This is reinforced again when there are children involved as the children also have an opportunity to be influenced by their believing parent. The concession that Paul gives here uh, and it's given by Paul, not the Lord, is what he says, is that if the unbelieving spouse wants a separation, not to withhold it, because there is no guarantee that they would become a Christian. And the differing values can cause a great deal of grief and pain. It's important to recognize that Paul is rep uh, referencing here to, to separation, not divorce, and that the greater responsibility is placed on Christians staying together. This is because this is how God has designed and intended marriage to be. It's a hard message, and I know for many, and for some, it, it, it's quite raw. I don't want you to feel any judgment if you've found yourself in any of those situations. The heart of it all. I want you to understand that divorce is brokenness. I don't know anyone who's been through a divorce is happy about it. I think anyone who has been through a divorce would much rather have had a healthy relationship, have had a, a husband or a wife who loved them the way that God loved them, should, tells us to love and shows us that we should love. Divorce, this is not a judgment on anyone who's been divorced, anyone who, who has instigated a divorce. If you want to talk to me about any of those circumstances, if you're concerned about that, I'm happy to sit down with you. But I want you to know, God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. There is grace in abundance. There is a recognition that we are broken and sinful. Divorce is no worse than any other sin. Divorce is the evidence of the brokenness in our lives. I want you to, I want you to hear that. One final, final topic to, to touch on here. Circumstances of abuse and domestic violence. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is a husband or wife justified in abusing their spouse. This kind of behavior and I hope you're seeing it today, flies in the face of everything that God declares marriage to be. In circumstances of abuse, it is perfectly okay to separate. But the desire, as with all conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ, is for reconciliation and redemption. Let me finish by saying this. We all have had varying experiences and circumstances in our lives and these biblical principles are written down to help guide Christians 
finding the best possible outcomes in their marriages as God desires for us. There are some today who've been divorced, maybe even remarried. There might be a number of reasons for that. For some, uh, a previous marriage may have fallen apart because they came to know Jesus. For others, it might have been after they came to know Jesus. In any case, we should all remember this. Our God is gracious and merciful. None of these things are unforgivable. These principles are here to help us to avoid the brokenness and the pain that divorce can bring. Not to condemn those whose marriages haven't lasted, those marriages who have been marred by sin. It's God desires that we don't dwell on the past but seek to honour him with all that we are and all that we have. It's his desire that we know the joy that he intended for us in marriage, joy that comes from faithfulness, forgiveness, grace, patience, perseverance, sacrifice, love, godly, unconditional love. So if you're married, my encouragement to you is to seek to grow in your marriage. If you're divorced or separated, seek reconciliation with your spouse in all things. Let's remember that God's desire is for our good and benefit. If you'd like some support, would like to have some strategies to help enrich your marriage, come and see me. There are ways that we can support one another without judgment to equip you to support and build a marriage filled with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, I know as we come to the end of our service today that this is a, a weighty topic for many. It is difficult, Lord, when we are confronted by our brokenness at times and we bear the scars, not just of our own sin, but those that have, have been close to us, Lord, our, our husbands, our wives, our parents. Father, we, we, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace and your peace. Lord, we pray for the, forgiveness, for, for the strength to forgive. Lord, to let go of the bitterness that, that may be scarring us, that we're holding on to. Lord, if there is any way for a relationship to be redeemed or reconciled in you, Father, I pray that you would, you would lead them in that way. Lead us all in your ways, Father. We pray, amen.